You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. Uh, She is an author, a speaker, a pastor's wife, a former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, and she's written several books, including The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith, which is amazing. This, I think this came out in about a while ago, uh, but I highly recommend it came out in 2012. And then her second book, Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts on an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. And I just read this last week. It's amazing. And her, the, the, the next book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And this is very convicting. And um, the subtitle is Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World, Welcome, Rosaria Butterfield. Thank you so much, Beckett. It's just awesome to finally meet you in person. I know, virtually. I know. It's great well, to meet you. you know, it's weird because we know each other through our books. And so now we get to have the real conversation. Yeah. And then at the end, later on, we're going to talk about how you just are finishing up your next book, your fourth book. So we'll get into that later. But let's uh, let's talk about first your background. Just kind of give us your background and your story sort of in a nutshell, which you go deep into in Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which is amazing. So tell us that story, because it's pretty incredible. (laughs) Well, it's not incredible, because incredible means it lacks credibility. So hopefully (laughs) it's not incredible. It's it's credible, but it's amazing. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. You can take the English professor out of the classroom, but, you know, here we are. As I know. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, that the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert um, is my story of coming to faith. It's my testimony. And, and I intentionally don't say anything about having been a lesbian in the title. And I do that because I really, I, I wanted it to be not a journey about, you know, one, you know, one flavor of sexuality to another, but what it means to go from unbelief to belief, because that's the radical power of the gospel. That's, that is, that's the deep root change of the gospel. Other things flow from that. You and I both know that, but it, you know, sometimes, especially in a world that is just obsessed with, um, um, you know, self ID and identity, we forget that there's a spiritual unbreakable um, eternal truth of the gospel that changes people from the bottom up. And so here we are. So the, the, um, I, I really isolate a small section of my life. Um, and I talk about what it was like to meet a pastor who was my neighbor, um, when I was a lesbian feminist activist professor and writing a book, I'd finished my tenure book, um, writing a book on how long, by the way, how long, I can't remember how long were you a professor at Syracuse? Yeah, I was there for 10 years, 10 years. So and you had and tenure. Was, did you have tenure? 
I did. Yeah, okay. I did. And so, and that's, um, I, I was, I met Ken Smith, the pastor who the Lord used in my conversion, um, just prior to tenure, but everything was ready to go. You know, I had written books, I had done everything, but sold my spleen, you know, it was all <laughs> ready to go. Right. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and then I was working on a new book, um, really basically on the religious right. And I was just quite curious why people like that hated people like me. You know, it wasn't personal. Um, it was just a question. And so so I, I started embarking on this book and a little I think, the you know, the promise keepers came to town and, and I don't know what they right. did. You know, my favorite parking spot was missing that day, which, you know, in Syracuse, New York can actually be a big deal. But anyway, I, uh, you know, I wrote an article. They published it in the um, in a New York uh, newspaper. It got, you know, the whole back page of the of the front section, which is the big section. And they titled it Promise Keepers Message is a Danger to Democracy. And I received a lot of feedback, as you can imagine. Um, um, and I wasn't I wasn't somebody, you know, the prom- by the way, the Promise Keepers are the it was a men's group that would. Um, meet Christian men's group that would meet and talk about, I don't know, what, what was it, the thrust? Of well, it? I, I don't even know either. I just was, <laughs> I was just upset because, you know, it was patriarchy, you know, like all these right. Christian men doing Christian men things. I don't know. Like it just, it was, it, it just, it, it was wrong back then. It was just wrong. And so um, I, and I, had, I had just written, uh, co-written the university's domestic partnership policy, which, was the forerunner for gay marriage. So, you know, like I, I was in on these conversations. And um, so I, got, I was always getting lots of hate mail and lots of fan mail that, that has not changed. <laughs> that, that was, yeah. that, lots of things have changed. That has not changed. Um, and but one of the letters came from Ken Smith. It was an amazing letter. I thought this man is really smart. If I'm going to write a book about the religious right, this is the kind of person I need to understand. Um, and quite frankly, I looked at Ken Smith as my personal an unpaid research assistant. And so I thought, well, of course, I'll have dinner with you. I'll have lots of dinners with you. I, I, you know, do you mind if I take notes? Um, <laughs> and of course, Ken, being a real Christian, didn't mind at all. He didn't mind at all. Yeah. Um, and so he, um, he and his wife, Floyd, they just, they welcomed me into their world and they came into my world and they didn't act as though I was polluting them. And early on in our, in our uh, friendship, Ken said to me, there's a difference between acceptance and approval. And if you can live with that difference, I can live with that difference. I love Um, that. Kind of tease that out a little bit. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, this was this was 1997. So this was back when the dinosaurs were walking the earth and yeah. before, you know, um, <clears throat> before that is an offensive idea. I think today that might be a very offensive idea. But what he meant is I'm a Christian. I have a certain um, understanding of the world and God's design and purpose in it. And you are an unbeliever and you have a certain perspective on the world and, um, and the lack of design and telos and purpose in it. And yet we are neighbors and we could be friends unless you are going to insist that I think the way you do. And I'm going to insist the way you think the way I do. If we can just actually not try to manipulate each other, we can actually be friends. 
I love that. I wish we could do that today. (laughs) Beckett, we can, and we do. We really do. I mean, Kent and I do. We, I'll tell you stories at the end about our neighbors and what's going on in our neighborhood and, we can live that way, but yeah. Not by the way, don't, people might be confused by Ken and Ken. Oh, I know. So it's a confusing thing. Ken was your pastor neighbor. He was my Ken. pastor neighbor. Ken Kent is your pastor husband. Exactly. Two different right. people. They're not the same well, people. Beckett, why are people confused? I don't. You didn't understand. break up a marriage. You didn't break up a marriage and like marry the pastor. Okay. <laughs> now Ken Smith is ninety-four years old and okay. still alive. And when Great. he watches this, we're both going to probably be rebuked for that comment. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, okay, go, so go ahead. Yeah. So so um, I started reading the Bible because I'm an English professor, it's not like I could go to a promise keepers rally and shove a microphone in somebody's face and say, how do you feel about, you know, patriarchy or something? So I started reading the Bible and I started meeting with Ken and Floyd. And, um, you know, I had a stick on my desk at the time that said, I would rather be um, wrong on an important subject than right on a trivial one. And I've always felt that way. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a truth seeker. And, um, Ken and Floyd and I met, I probably had maybe 500 meals at his house. That would be like a, that's like the short end of it. Um, I met the entire, you know, church community. I saw the way his house functioned. Um, It was amazing, right? I mean, we would, we would talk about hard and heavy things. We would read the Bible. We would pray. We would sing Psalms. Um, We'd come back and do it again. And this was, you know, this was the 90s. This is New York. Um, my lesbian partner and I, we, that was, you know, we were so non-heteronormative. We would not use the word marriage, even if, you know, like, it's just, you know, just forget it. But, right. you know, our home was a lot like the Smith's home, except for, you know, we weren't Christians. But our home was open. Um, members of the gay community would, would come in. In fact, in my gay community in New York, somebody's home was open every night of the week um, for food and fellowship and just to stand between you and suicide and you and another, you know, who's, you know, who's been diagnosed with AIDS now, you know, I mean, it was a scary time, a very scary time. And I couldn't help but to notice there was a, there was a, an aesthetic and a palpable difference between my house and Ken and Floyd Smith's house. And that's that my house was filled with anxiety and constant uh, you know, frenetic political activism. And, you know, at Ken's house, they would talk about hard things, but at a certain point, you know, they'd open the Bible, they'd pray, and they would do this thing called leave it at the cross. And then they'd go on and laugh and feast and have fun. And, and I got the sense that they weren't insomniacs either. They could sleep at night. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was intrigued by that. You know, I was intrigued by that. And I came to the Bible with a long list of things I just, I was mad about and I needed to work through. And Ken and Floyd agreed to work through with me, you know, just work through all of these points, you know, patriarchy, slavery, um, you know, just the, these big, these big life issues. These were not small things for me. I had committed my life to standing with the disempowered and to living in a way that that made this world a better place. And I was confident that the Bible stood against all of that. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, in two years, I read the Bible through seven times, and wow. um, which sounds crazy, but I'm a, 
you know, that's what I do. So, um, <laughs> and, but, but why, by the way, while you're reading through the Bible seven times or even the first time, what were you, was it, were you getting it? Were you liking it? Like, what, how are you reacting to it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, I mean, I study hermeneutics. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, in fact, I was really fascinated by it because I had never read it before. Um, you know, and I like a new book. I like reading new books, but I was fascinated by it because of the different hermeneutical voices you have in this book. I mean, it's a, it's a very meaty book, right? I mean, you've got the, um, the judicial law, and the moral law and the ceremonial law. And, and it's interwoven using literally every single genre that ever existed. I mean, that was fascinating to me. Like I, I really, that was really, really interesting. And so I was very excited about this book. I was very excited to tear this book apart. That's what I did. And I enjoyed doing it. And at a certain point, Ken said to me, um, listen, can I come to your class and, you know, you're really obviously very excited about the Bible as literature. Can I come to your class and talk about, you know, the overarching story of the Bible as literature, but also as a book of saving faith? You know, do you mind if I do that? And I was just like, what? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I was just feeling full on mama bear, like you're not getting near my gay students, buddy. And so I said, well, no, you know, you cannot do that. I said, but I would love to hear that lecture. You have a lecture? I'll give it to me. Wow. Um, and so he did. And it was, um, I, you know, I remember before the lecture, I, um, I'm the consummate student. I love being a student. I'm not, you know, I, I know how to be the teacher and I know how to be a student. And so I, I really just kind of worked myself into a posture that I was going to be a student. I was going to listen to what Ken Smith had to say. And I was going to try to understand what he was saying from his point of view. Um, I, I wanted to understand why Bible-believing Christians believed the things they did. Meeting Ken and Floyd Smith changed my notion of who these people were. These were not stock figures who were stupid. These were really smart people um, who were really kind to me, even though um, I was not kind to them at all. And so, so I was intrigued by this and it was a very, very powerful lecture. I still have it and I have it in a, you know, it was typed up. I said, can I, may I have those notes? He said, sure, here you go. So he did, he, you read the lecture or did he like, did no, he, he, he delivered it. He's he a great it. teacher. Yeah. He literally came to my house and um, I made Ken and Floyd dinner and um, you know, all of my friends, you know, kind of disappeared that night. Nobody, nobody else was <laughs> up on this. Um and he gave me that lecture. And, um, and I remember when he left, you know, so he gave me his notes, I took notes, and he gave me his notes. And when he left, I remember thinking, if I believed this, my life would be radically different. And I mean, how, and how, by the way, how was your partner at the time feeling about all this going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she was a professor, too. And so we, we weren't scared of ideas. Um, we weren't scared of ideas. We love hard ideas. Um, she was a psychology professor. And so at a certain point, I definitely became diagnostically interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, at that point, she was just, you know, this is what I was doing. Um, and then that, that, I think it was that, that Thursday. Thursday was the night our house was open. Um, and I was sharing with everybody what I had learned. And because this was so, just so hermeneutically interesting. And so let me say to you at the time, I mean, you know, I was all about diversity, 
all about diversity. And I was mostly hanging out with 30 something lesbian PhDs in the humanities. Right. So, so, you know, I'm talking about hermeneutics and of course this is everybody else, you know, everybody else is kind of, you know, tracking with me and, um, but there was somebody else at this, at this gathering that night. And it was a transgendered friend who had just started coming over and, um, this person's name was Jill and Jill followed me to the kitchen and sat me down and said, you are playing with fire. And I know you're playing with fire because I used to be a Presbyterian minister. My name was Matthew. I was married to Mary. We have three children. The gospel changes people and you are playing with fire. Okay, so this is, and I just tell people, you want to know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen? Well, you know, come to my house, right? And so I was taken a little bit aback, and I think I said something like, okay, but, you know, it was my consummate, it's my go-to question all the time, my go-to response all the time. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if Jesus is risen and real and we are all in trouble. And what was Jill's response? <laughs> it was awesome. Jill said, <clears throat> I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you to know the truth. Uh, God didn't change me, but I'll pray that God changes you. And by change, what did she mean? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, that you think there's a lot of ways you can, you could, you could, you could come at that. I wasn't really sure either. Um, and the next day I came home from uh, work and I'm about to let the dogs out. And there are these boxes of books, which that is my love language. You know what I mean? Like just leave boxes <laughs> of books in front of my front door. Um, and these were Jill's books from seminary. Wow. Um, I, have her, I have Calvin's Institutes right behind us. That book is very special to me because in the margins is Jill's marginalia, right? Which is one of those wow. old words that, you know, people, people my age use. That's when people write in the margins of their right. books and they write incisive important things and um uh during calvin's um exposition of romans one there were painful painful marginalia yeah and i and i I, you know it just it just tore my heart out and i i came in and i brought the you know i brought the boxes of books in and i'm kind of looking through them like oh this is great. And I, and I get to this, I, I, you know, I'm reading the marginalia and I get to this, be careful here, watch out. This can't be true. And I think, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about Romans one. And then I, you know, open my Bible and I realize, Oh, I've read, I've read through this Bible a lot, but Romans one is one of those sections. I like to skip a lot. I don't like to, I don't like to really (laughs) medicate on this. And, um, but I did because it was almost like my friend was holding my hand or at least holding my heart with marginalia and um, yeah. read it. And I kept thinking, I wonder if this is true. I wonder if this is true. Um, I wonder, I wonder if this is true. 
because at that point I understood that my, my social imaginary, my, the things that I pieced together to call my life that I loved didn't really have a telos. It didn't, there was nothing, there was no design at the end that would make sense. Right. It was all very in the present. We were to be good people, but this Christian worldview had a telos and this man, God who was and is compelling beyond description And I wondered two things. Could I trust him? And is it true? Mm -hmm. And that was really the turning point. And that's when I decided that I needed to stop working with Ken Smith. I needed to just kind of disappear from Ken and Floyd's life and throw this book project in the way uh, in the garbage because it was way too dangerous. And, and so I told that to Ken and Floyd, I said, you know, I'm sorry, this, you know, this book project is bad for my health. Um, these questions are too personal and it's, it's too scary to think that you might be right. And I might be wrong. It's just too scary to think that. So the book, so, you mean the book that you were working on, you had to, yeah. you know, and not the Bible. I, I was happy to, I was happy to throw the Bible away too. That's fine. Okay. You know, all of it. And at that point, Ken and Floyd did not exactly became stalkers, but they came very close. <laughs> yeah. I, you mentioned that. Okay. They weren't going to let go of me. They yeah. weren't going to let go of me. And so at that point, I stopped reading the Bible for research and started reading it for personal questions of truth and life and death. And, um, and it was at that point that I was convicted of a number of sins. Um, lesbianism actually wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the top. You, I mean, people always think, well, and then you were convicted of your senator. No, that, that's what, that was so deep. It took so long to get there. You don't even want to know. <laughs> but I was convicted of the sin of somehow thinking that I had been on the side of truth and justice and diversity and reparations and kindness and compassion and care when it really was Jesus I was persecuting the whole time. I was, I was convicted that, yeah, that's a sin. I committed that sin. Um, And I, I, um, yeah, I remember one, you know, one time can, you know, I started going to church. I just showed up one day and, you know, in my butch haircut and my Doc Martens and my, <laughs> my piercings. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you, I was the only person dressed that way in a Reformed and Presbyterian church. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I also discovered that sermons were this totally different, different thing. And they would, they would really force me to think about things that I hadn't thought before. And one of the things that I did realize after um, after Ken's preaching, actually through the gospel of John, it had nothing to do with sexuality, but I, I realized that part of why I didn't understand how to be a godly woman was because I didn't understand how to be a woman, which was hilarious because I'm a professor of women's studies at the time. But anyway, that's, you know, irony is <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, maybe that was the problem. Yeah. So I was a mess and I conv- committed, I, you know, committed my life to Christ because I believed he was true and real. And I had no idea what he was going to do with a mess like me. Wow. And then you ended up, and then you broke up with your partner, right? 
Well, I did. I mean, it was pretty mutual. She was not, nobody, who wants to be, you know, like, I wasn't fun to be around, to say the least. No, I mean, I mean, I really do mean it. Like, it just, in a, in a, in a lesbian relationship in that culture and at that moment, being politically on board with each other was a part of the intimacy of our relationship. It wasn't like, you know, I don't know, that was, that was a glue. And so if that wasn't there, that, that wasn't there. Um, but I also, yeah, it's interesting like- because in, in, uh, you know, in my experience living as a gay man for 20 years in Los Angeles, it's a very different, as you know, lesbians and gay men are very different. <laughs> and pretty and you and uh oftentimes antagonistic toward each other and mm-hmm. but you're i in the lesbian world from my experience it was more about community and political mm-hmm. activism and 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 that's kind of what the glue was that that mm-hmm. bound those that group together whereas in the gay men's world it was sex and it was a lot of sex mm-hmm. a lot of alcohol a lot of drugs mm-hmm. and it's weird because uh, that's, that's the sense of community that I experienced in Los Angeles. It was, it was never really about like, let's get together and, you know, just love each other and hang out and, and be with one another. It was like, no, let's go to a gay bar. Let's like hook up with somebody and let's do drugs or whatever. It was, it was all, it was so much based around that. Like that's what holds that whole community together in a, in a large, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but in in a large part, that's kind of the the fundamental difference between gay men and lesbians. Oh yeah. 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 We all thought you guys were just a bunch of sexual hedonists and you (laughs) thought we were just a bunch of political social prigs. Exactly. Exactly. But but then AIDS came and we worked together, at least in New York, there was, there, there, there was, we were stuck with each other and that's all there was to it. And I think that's really how the gay community, at least in New York became a community before that. It just was a kind of, you know, grab bag of very different, very, very different interests. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and how long was it after you committed your life to Christ, after you came to faith until you met Kent and married him? Yeah, that well, that was a couple of years. Yeah, that was a couple of years. Although um, I would say the Lord worked very quickly. Um, I mean, I, I was convicted that it was a sin to depart not only from what the Bible said we we're supposed to do with our bodies, but from what the Bible said we were supposed to do with our our image bearing. That Genesis 1, 27, 28, we were made in the image of God. Um, and that that being made in the image of God, we're not we're made in the image, not as the image. And that that sexual difference was something I I know I knew I really needed to understand um, because that was just terrifying to me. And I should say, I wasn't, it wasn't that I had never had any relationships with men. Um you know, I was of the generation, we came out of the Adrian Rich, uh, you know, compulsory heterosexuality and lesbian existence. So all of my lesbian peers, we had had, um, you know, experiences with men. So some of us had been married and had children with men. Um, and we just called ourselves informed lesbians. That's all we were, you know, like we, we weren't like 
oh, I, you know, I have no idea what I'm not, what I'm missing. No, we really did. We really did. Um, And so then the Lord had to really impress upon me that there was something more to being human than having a sexual orientation. And what was, what was kind of interesting about that is I'm a 19th century scholar. So I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, my, my, you know, romantic and Victorian literature and that, that, you know, Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin are, you know, were my, you know, kind of go-to philosophers. And so I actually knew I had studied and even taught how sexual orientation as, um, as a category of personhood first entered the world. And um, so I knew it wasn't like as old as Adam or, you know, somehow kind of natural. I knew it was a socially constructed category of personhood with a political uh, agenda and a, um, and and an evolutionary one as well. And so, um, so I had to, you know, I just, uh, you know how it is when you, when you, I don't know, when your whole life turns upside down, you have to wonder, well, how much of my own feedback loop have I been, you know, drinking? Um, Am I, am, is lesbian who I am or is it how I feel? And, um, you know, there's a particular way that the 19th century created an epistemology, a whole, a whole um, zeitgeist of, um, value infused in your personal feelings. I, I mean, you know, so much so that it is really funny the way C.S. Lewis critiques that in Screwtape Letters, where he's, you know, Screwtape is talking to Wormwood and he says, you know, no, 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 no. Don't let your person start to struggle with identity. Let's make sure he gets a toothache. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, 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 no. Um, and I love, by but, the way, I love Carl Truman's book on the modern self. It, that's such yeah. a great great book but yeah. yeah yeah so so i you know i had to think about those things and i and i and i had to pray about those things and i remember one night i'm so at this point my 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 lesbian partner moved out but then some other um women who were lesbians who lived in my house were there and i remember um you know i remember just praying that the lord would make me a godly woman that i i mean you know just like in fact, I, I remember one of the women from church just saying, Rosaria, just give it up and pray that the Lord would make you a godly woman. I, like, I don't even, you know, and so I, I, I did. I went that night and I prayed that the Lord would make me a godly woman. And then I laughed out loud because that was such a hilarious prayer. And then one of my housemates, who's a Wiccan witch, is, you know, knocking on my door. Are you okay in there? You know, you're laughing to yourself. Wow. Um. But that was, you know, prayer is really powerful. If you pray that the Lord will, in yeah. fact, and, you know, like I, I just, you know, I mean, what, what Jill said was right. You know, I'm playing with fire. You're playing with fire. You want to follow Jesus. Um, you know, the, I would not say the biggest question is, do you love Jesus? I would say the biggest question is, does Jesus love you? And one of the ways you know is, are you willing to love Jesus more than your notions? Um, are you willing to pray and ask God to help you to hate your sin without hating yourself? Or do you want to really see your sin through the crosshairs, you know, so that you can actually, you know, as John Owen would say, Kill mortify it. it, or mortify do you just want it. to see it in a selfie at a conference? Right. You know, like, oh, hey, you know, here I am at a conference with all the other people who sin just the way I do. And look at all of us. We're having a great time. Yeah. Like, 
how do you want to see your sin? And so those were, those were hard, but good moments. And I should tell you that the church was amazing, right? This was an amazing church. And I remember, you know, one day going to, you know, to the, the women in the church and feeling a little pouty, like, Oh, look at all the things I have to give up. And, and I remember somebody saying, why don't you walk around this whole church and ask people what they had to give up for Jesus and then come back to me and tell me if you have to give up more. Okay? Amen. I love that. I love that. And so I don't know, these were people who loved me and who just were willing to tell the truth. And there was this God who loved me and was yeah. willing to tell the truth. And so those, that was a powerful time. But yes, it was two years. And one of the things that I learned through being married to Kent Butterfield now, you know, well over 20 years um, is that the covenant of Christian marriage is not just two heterosexual Christians doing whatever they want. That the covenant of Christian marriage is learning to be one flesh. Right. And it's for that reason. And, and I'm not, let me, let me be very, be very careful. I, I am not suggesting that marriage is a solution to any kind of sin pattern. So I'm not suggesting, and I want anybody to hear like, oh, this is what I'm struggling with. Let me go get married. And that's going to solve my problems. No, right. but there is such a blessing in covenant marriage that I would be so remiss if I said, you know, if I, if I, if I, failed to say that, you know, that learning to be one flesh and learning to be one mind is as a Christian in, in a Christian covenant of marriage is part of how God changed, you know, changed me and healed me and heals me still heals me. Wow. Um, and so I mean, it, you know, people say, well, what's your sexual you know, orientation now? I mean, I, I have a long lecture on how sexual orientation is not actually a category of personhood and we can go there, but Which we're good. Yeah. We'll get to you in a minute. But, but I ahead. would just say is that my, my affection and attraction is for my husband and that's it. Yeah. And I think that's great. Yeah. I, I mean, like I, you know, as a pastor's wife, I counsel a lot of women and, you know, it, let me tell you what it would be, re- you know, to really keep yourself on a short leash as a Christian. It's a really good thing. And God will bless you and give you great happiness and joy, but it's totally different. Being one flesh means is a totally different thing than just two Christians in a marriage doing whatever they want. And so that's yeah. why I think the whole category of gay Christianity, mixed orientation, marriage, I think it's a travesty. I think it makes mockery of any number of things. The gospel would be one of those. Right. And you, and so also at a certain point you resigned from your job, right. And, and your friend, I, I, I think you're, I can't remember which book you talked about this in, but you, your friends were like, why do you, why are you doing this? You're destroying your life. You worked so hard to get your PhD and your and your tenure. And like, so how did you, I guess it just became untenable to keep doing what you were doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was married, I was married to a, to a pastor in Virginia and I wasn't going to keep a, you know, a lectern in New York. It, you know what I mean? Like it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't, we, and we couldn't work as a team, as a ministry team, if I did that. Was it a difficult, I mean, not a difficult decision, but was it, 
Was it a strange decision for you to just say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm done. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And even, I mean, like even my Dean, my, you know, my academic Dean, the president, I mean, I had all kinds of people, you know, kind of like, why don't we slow down? Why don't you take another sabbatical? Let's not make this decision really fast. You can work remotely. You know, I mean, it was, it was a really, it was so hard. It was so scary and hard and, um, and really even good Christian friends saying things like, well, um, no, this doesn't make sense. How about if like Kent becomes the stay at home dad and you, you, you know, you keep the, yeah, you're going to leave a tenured position at a, at a, at a tiered research university to be a church planter's wife. I mean, that's what idiots do, right? Right. Um, and then people would say things like, you'll never write any more books. You'll never, you'll never have a life of the mind. You'll never, ever, ever, ever. And by God's grace alone, I, I don't think I would have been able, I mean, I've written a lot, you know, the books I've written since throwing my life away, apparently have been much better books than the books <laughs> I had written before. I mean, you know, I've, I've written more than the books you've held up and that's good. You know, yeah. You yeah. Sorry. I, I, yeah. I don't so, have the full list here, the full bibliography, you know, but what, it, and what about your students where, I mean, the students that you were closely connected with at that time, were they just like, what is going on with you? You're leaving. Yeah. What is happening? Well, and that's, I think what we need to realize too, that my students and my lesbian partner and my lesbian colleagues, they felt betrayed because they were betrayed. They, I betrayed them, um, you know, and by, I betrayed them by following Jesus. I when, when I betrayed them, I, I stopped, um, I stopped directing dissertations in queer theory. And can you imagine, I mean, just think about it, what it would have been like to be an internet, this happened actually, to be an international student who, you know, came halfway across the world to work with me in queer theory. And I'm now leading dissertations in Christian hermeneutics, you know, and literally your, (laughs) your career is in the toilet before you even, you know, got off the plane, you know, it's horrible, right? I mean, it was really, and one of, that was one of the hardest things about, about, I think, I mean, there were all of it is, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be so dramatic about it, but you know, everything was, was so hard back in it, but it was, and I ended up hurting the people I loved the most. And that was horrible. I mean, I was, I just, you know, as I got as, you know, the, the irony of it all, I was scheduled to do the incoming address for all um, graduate students. That's about 3000 people. And I was supposed to talk on queer theory and I just, you know, I said, well, I can't do that anymore. So I'm going to talk on Christian hermeneutics. And, you know, you can imagine, like, you can just imagine, like, how that was, was working for my, you know, now, I mean, I was, it was very, you know, like, there were many Christian students who appreciated this, but the people that I knew by first name and last name, who had been part of my life and part of my world. um, And it got to be so bad that one of my graduate students uh, tried to commit suicide. And I was, it was an international student. And so I was her um, kind of in loco parentis and the phone rang and, you know, that, that's back when phones were on the wall in the yeah, kitchen. Yeah, I miss those days. Um, I know, long back when the dinosaurs walked the earth and um, it was the hospital and 
and I remember realizing what was going on and realizing that I needed my Christian friends there. Um, if I was going to be her primary person, but also she needed our lesbian friends there. And that led to some of the most awkward, uncomfortable and fruitful conversations of my life with, you know, my, at that point, ex-partner and my former lesbian community, you know, doing what it does best, surrounding somebody with love and care and concern. And now my, my Christian community doing what it does best, surrounding with, you know, concern and care and compassion. And it was very tough. It was very, very tough. And I was, I was not innocent. Um, there's a cost to following Christ. Yeah. And, and it's one thing for it to be your cost when you're a believer and you get the Lord and you have the promises of the, of, of the scriptures and you have eternal life in Christ, but it's even, it's something truly horrific when it's the people who are just mangled in the process, who do not want the Lord, who are not, you know, who, who, who are hearing what you're saying and rejecting it. And, um, and, and the, you know, it's just, it was, it was horrible. That was really horrible. And I think that's part of what people don't realize. And I remember talking to one of the deacons in my church and he even said, Rosaria, if we had any idea what a bloodbath your conversion would have been, I don't think we would have been praying as hard. We need about 10 years to recover from this. You know? And so I think it's so silly, you know, when, when Christians pray, oh, you know, you know, that's good. Pray, please pray for the conversion of the lost, but then be ready to catch all those pieces. Yeah. Cause it's there a, a lot. It's a, <clears throat> there's it's a, a lot. Uh, there was a lot of uh, blood uh, flowing after when I got saved with my mm-hmm. old friends. So it was a, uh, it was a crazy time. Yeah. Um, now we're kind of running out of time. So, but I want to get to just a, a few more questions if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you talked about, sexual i think you talked about you talk about this whole idea and openness unhindered and um you talk about we talked about sexual orientation and and you talk about freud and how this kind of idea of sexual orientation and identity came into being mm-hmm. so g- can you just give us a little overview of that yeah 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 and so that's a whole chapter in openness unhindered is how yeah. the how this idea came into being and and this is where you you really need to understand that that you know words have a material force and so when people say look it's just semantics you can just like throw george orwell at them just take a nice big copy of 1984 and like throw <laughs> plus it good, against, double plus good yeah against the head and see what happens because words have a material force and so at a certain point in the 19th century as um, existentialism and nihilism are 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 really in, and, and Darwin also are just infiltrating, um, um, and, and also you know this the academy, is, we, yeah, and we've got the world wars, and we've got you know there's just a lot of a lot of um, you know just the foundations are destroyed, and and how could a holy God be looking over all of this? And um, and so Freud comes on on you know really comes of age with a new definition of personhood, that what a person really is, is someone whose sexual desires have different sexual objects. And he attaches an ontology to that, that that is personhood. Um, that, so there is a, you know, you can be a gay person, um, 
and you can be a heterosexual person. At that point, those were the only categories. And even someone like Michel Foucault, you know, the French, uh, gay French historian of ideas who died in, uh, of AIDS of, in 19, tragically, in 19. Yeah, he had a very, very um, intense kind of sexual life. Yeah. Yes, he did. But he even was was convinced that this whole idea of, you know, as he put it, you know, the sodomites now as a category of, you know, of acceptable personhood, this is going to be terrible. This is a yeah. terrible idea, you know. Um, and so at first there was, I think, concern uh, that this was just going to become one more way to marginalize um, a population of people whose sexual desires attach to same-sex objects. But, but very quickly, everybody latched onto this, okay? And the idea that who you are is how you feel, it launched a, you know, just a Pandora's box, really. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's led a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, into very strange places, Um you are not who you, how you feel. Feelings are ephemeral and, um, and, and even, even the feelings that are persistent, if those feelings, when you hold them up to the word of God, if those feelings attach to a desire that God calls sin, God is right. It's sin. And your feelings don't make it less than that. And um, and I think what what you have in the gay Christian movement, side A or B, uh, because in some ways side A is more theologically accurate. At least at least if you're side A, two plus two equals four. Um, but but side A or B, they, it, it comes from the same um, uh, uh, distortion of the gospel. You you have a, um, a a category of personhood that God has denied. Uh, in Christ, what you are is a male or female image bearer of a holy God with a soul that will last forever and a body that will be glorified in heaven should you be a believer or, or cursed uh, in hell should you be an unbeliever. You're, it is a, there's a material reality to this. And that material reality is very, very significant. I've known a number of people who are they called? They called themselves detransitioners, right? These are people who had tried um, to go through a sex change operation, believed they were transgendered, came to Christ, and realized that you know what? No, and I have mutilated myself, and this is awful. But in the New Jerusalem, I will be made whole again because being male or female is ontological; it's eternal. It's not. Yeah. It, it, you know, that it's so. In some ways, the the gospel might be the best news to people who uh, think they are transgendered more than, more than, you know, it's, it's, it's a clearest example of God has you. He's not going to, he's not going to forsake you. Yeah. And by the way, just so we're clear to the audience, when you said side A is more accurate, you didn't mean it's mm -hmm. more accurate than side B. You meant it's more accurate than the, it's more, it's more internally consistent. modernist kind of view. Yeah. It, it's more internally consistent. Side A would say, um, we should not, the Bible can't be trusted, but the, the, um, the ethos of the Bible or its trajectory, the trajectory of, of, of the, of the Jesus of love, uh, means that if I say I love Jesus, then Jesus has got to love me. 
I've already, you know, dismissed the Bible as something that is inerrant. It's not. I cut, you know, I've cut this part out and that part out and that part out. And so here's Jesus, my paper mache imaginary doll, and he loves me. And therefore, if you don't, you aren't being a Christian. And I, I have a very dear friend. In fact, she um, uh, was a research assistant of mine at one point. And um, uh, she came to me recently and she said, you know, Rosaria, it makes me really sad that one of us is going to go to hell. Uh, she's a side A Christian who believes that if you think that um, homosexuality is a sin, you know, that's you're you're creating a context of emotional abuse in people's lives. And that's what I, I just wanted to clear up what side A and side B. Yeah, are. well, side A would be practicing homosexuality and yes. side B is. Um, uh, allowing for a gay under and a Freudian understanding of personhood and self identification while at the same time claiming Christ's love and blessing over that. And I would say Christ cares as much about your biblical anthropology as he does what you do in bed. Right. But what about, you know, the revisionists would use kind of the argument that uh, your Freudian kind of argument that you just talked about, that we, you know, the ancients, Paul didn't understand what sexual orientation was where, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we understand it. So Paul didn't know what he was really talking about. So what, I mean, how do you respond to the revisionists who who would use that argument? Right, 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 right. Well, what I would say though, see the revisionists aren't just revising that um, the revisionists are revising what the Bible actually is. The Bible is a unified biblical revelation. You could no more take six clobber verses and kind of yank them out of the Bible and read them as, you know, just, you know, bad, bad, out, that's a problem. Uh, then you could take a, you know, a scissors to it and just make your paper mache, make your Jesus, my little imaginary, uh, you know, so, so we would just disagree about what the Bible is. That's the, that's really what we're disagreeing about. We're, right. we're, before we're disagreeing about what it says, we're disagreeing about what it is. And and I know, you know, I've had, you know, Matthew Vines and others say, oh, how dare Rosaria, you know, how can you read my heart? I'm not reading your heart. I'm reading your book. I don't know how to read your heart, <laughs> but I know how to read your book and you can't get exactly. to heaven. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not rocket science. And you and I, we, we agree on this. Uh, we agree on this, the semantics of all this, uh, but talk about just quickly. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, what, do you mean, what do you mean? We agree on the semantics of this. What well, am I about to say? Uh, what okay. I'm about to say is that, is that, or not the semantics, but the um, reality of this, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Is that um, just the idea of, of call, if I'm a, a follower of Christ and I'm, you know, I have same sex attraction and I'm celibate or whatever, I'm single and I'm celibate, but I still identify as a gay Christian. Just tell us what the problem with that is. Yeah. Well, the problem is sin unfits a believer for divine service, says Calvin. And you cannot desire something that is sinful without sinning. 
Um, Jesus even goes so far as to say things like cut off your hands. Right. I mean, it's the, and so that's why this whole, you know, this manipulation that some therapists are using with parents of young children saying, well, would you rather have a dead son or a living daughter? And Eugene, as a Christian, you want to just say, well, let me tell you what Jesus says about that, actually. So because let me tell you about this. I mean, that, that's not going to work with me. That's not a hook that a Christian can get hooked on. But but side P Christianity is different from biblical Christianity. I mean, I, I've got seven different points there. They have a different understanding of personhood, a different understanding of biblical authority, a different understanding of sin, temptation, desire, redemption, hell, including original sin, actual sin, and indwelling sin. They have a different understanding of the centrality of the cross The blood of Christ does not make an ally with the sin it crushes, never has, never will. Uh, And they do have a different understanding of a biblical sexual ethic, because if you desire something sinful, you're a sinner in need of repentance and grace, not a sexual minority in need of a parade, a party and a conference. I love that. Uh, Well, yeah. There's also a different understanding of God's holiness and a different understanding of how you're justified before a holy God. It's a different religion. Yeah. And I don't care how nice these people are, how much they smile, how much they tell you they love Jesus. I'm not saying they won't ever be saved. I'm, and, you know, and here's the other thing I want to say, too, is nobody's saved by your religion. You're, you're not saved by your religion. Your religion, though, can condemn you. Protestants love to talk about that in terms of Catholicism, right? Catholics who believe they're saved because they have, you know, been baptized by a Catholic priest. Well, how is that any different than the gay Christian who says, well, I don't believe the Bible is true on any of these points. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stick to my traditional biblical sexual ethic, but I'm not going to uphold biblical understandings of sin, redemption, justification, repentance, um, personhood. Um, but I know Jesus loves me, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm a product of the 21st century. If you self ID, don't anybody argue with me. How can you argue with me? Beckett, I'm a dragon. Don't you tell me I'm not a dragon. You know, I'm, you're going to be, you know, emotionally abusing me now. Right. So, and, and I think the big issue really is this category of indwelling sin. I think for most of us, sexual sin is an indwelling sin which is a really hard sin. It is. It's a miserable one. And it's, you know, and the more you've, and you and I know this, the more you've practiced it, the more, the deeper. The more indwelling it is. Yeah. The more indwelling it is. Yeah. But, you know, you can't minimize, you can't domesticate your indwelling sin. You can't, you know, your indwelling sin is a little bit like a little baby tiger, you know, don't put a little pink collar on her and name her fluffy and bring her in and say, but look, she's got a collar and a leash. Cause you know what? Someday she's going to grow up and eat you alive. Cause that's her job. And that's what indwelling sin does too. And that's why it's the hardest thing for the Christian to do. And it really is. I don't want to minimize this. It's not to hate your sin without hating yourself is that's, that's, the, that's just the hardest thing in the world. And you can't do it without God's grace. You can't do it without the, the, the kind company of the Holy spirit. Yeah. Amen. It's not something you can do in the flesh. Right. And um, I mean, we're I'm so bummed that we're running out of time, but I just, I have two more questions for you. Okay. I have more, but I'm going to have to cut it. Um, I'm sorry. 
No, it's good. I love, because I love the conversation we're having. It's so, this is so important. And what, what do you think about, cause I, I, I see this phenomenon really just, and it's very upsetting to me that leaders in the church, pastors in the church won't touch this issue anymore. And what, what, what concerns me is that there are a large portion of congregations who because it's not talked about, this issue is not talked about from the pulpit or at all. There's a large, I, at least from churches I've been to, a large percentage of people who are kind of like, well, I guess it's really not a sin anymore because no one's really talking about it. The culture is so powerful. I, you know, I, I guess the culture's right. So what do you, what do you think about that? What do you think about leaders not kind of stepping up or should they step up and talk about it more? I mean, I don't. Yeah. Yes, you know, I'm I'm from um, a very specific kind of church. I'm from what's called a confessional reformed church. That means that we are, and we're Presbyterian. So, right. so our our pastors just can't go off the grid. Yeah, you know, I mean, they can go, they can leave the they can leave the pastorate and go sell insurance. And the guys who are tempted to do what you just talked about, that's what they're doing. I mean, if, if, because if you can't explain why homosexuality is a sin in this culture you cannot explain why and how the gospel is good news for you know a number of very confused people and as carl truman points out in his book when you're dealing with the social imaginary you're not just dealing with the whatever percentage of the people you're dealing with everybody you're dealing with joe the plumber who doesn't want to be a bad guy Right. So I would say those pastors need to go sell insurance. Um, <laughs> now, you know, and, 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 you know, you and I love insurance, but yeah, no, it's not for the faint hearted. You have to be able to not just explain, but, but live it out. I mean, here's the thing. If you're calling somebody to leave everything for Christ, are you ready to be that person's family? Is your guest room ready? Or if you don't have a guest room, how's the couch looking? Are you ready to say um, every holiday, our house is open. You're needed. Not just, you know, hey, um, three Tuesdays from next month, can you come over? Are you willing to be a family of God? So it's a theological problem and it's a, and it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it, in, in reform theology, we talk about the third use of the law and the third use of the law is doing good to your neighbor. The right. first and the second are, you know, confronting your sin, including your original sin. And then, you know, coming to you, knowing that you can't be saved by the law that you need to be saved by Christ. And so seeking, seeing the law as your tutor that seeks, you know, that, that causes you to seek um, redemption through the blood of Christ. But the third use is, doing good to your neighbor in the context of the moral law of God. And part of that means, and that's part of why Ken Smith lives the way he lived. That's part of why the Butterfields live the way we live. And, you know, my, my single Christians, I mean, you know, it's, it's almost a joke, but you know, we have, my children have so many aunts and uncles that they would not have. I have so many brothers and sisters that we would not have. And you know what? We do this every night. <laughs> I know, which brings us 
which we're open us our, every night. I know. Which brings us to the last, uh, the last question. I mean, no, we're this. I'm so sorry. We're we don't have time yeah. to get into this because it's such a great book. The gospel comes with a house key. Just tell us, because you talk about in this book, you talk about um, radical, what is it? Radical ordinary hospitality. Just kind of give us a brief overview of what that means and a couple of examples of of that hospitality. Yeah, yeah. It started in our neighborhood when the the neighbor whose house I'm staring at now, as I'm sitting talking to you, Hank. turned out that he was uh, he had a meth lab in his house. Yes, and was arrested, and we were known to be his only friends. And of course, nothing endears you like a Christian family if. You know, there's crime scene tape around a house and there's there's DEA, every, you know. So so one of the things that Kent and I realized at that point is that we just needed to be a kind of open house for the gospel on these on these questions. And so we started practicing nightly hospitality and it just means what it means. It means that, you know, 530 or six o'clock, people started flooding in and, um, you know, I cleaned up the homeschool table. And, uh, you know, this is where all my single friends come in handy because all of my single women friends know what to do. If there's piles of laundry on the dining room table, you know, you shove it back in the dryer. What else would you do? You know, <laughs> you know where else does it go? Um, and, and we would just, you know, pretty much model what we learned, what I learned at Ken Smith's house. We would just um, talk about the hard things and uh, gather together and, pray and sing a psalm and go home and then do it again the next day. And, um, and during this time, all of our unbelieving neighbors would, you know, would join us and, you know, and Kent would open the Bible at a certain point and the, the, you know, the, the neighbor would ask the question that every covenant child wants to know, you know, two questions, how long will this take? And do I have to pray? You know, those are very good questions. And, um, and over the course of, of the years that our neighborhood was healing um, and, and we were doing this, we, we also realized that we were probably um, really neglecting the singles in our church who were tired of having by invitation only relationships with their church family. And so we started, um, we just said to the singles in our church, just, we need you. We want you come, you know, every day, you know, but you know, you, you work over there at Duke, you have to, drive past our house to get home, stop, eat, have devotions. Um, and it was, it was good for everybody. And, and now, and now we do that for all the holidays. We are the officially the holiday nonconformists, you know, um, and my kids have never known a Christmas or a Thanksgiving without just, you know, tables full of people, um, you know, Christians who are on leave from prison. Um, sometimes I never know how many people are coming. One year for Thanksgiving, Kent turned to me and said, where are the raffle tickets? I said, <laughs> why? He said, because we have to raffle turkey this year. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> you know, and so, and so that's just, um, and it's not always, I mean, we don't have people over every night. And, you know, at a certain point, things in the neighborhood settle down, but it was good to have that kind of preparation going into COVID because people think, oh, you know, everybody had to stop. Well, guess what? There were still kids who needed a place to live. And I really do mean that there were, we were so busy during the COVID lockdown that, you know, it made gospel comes with a house key look like, you know, kindergarten hospitality. 
Um, because, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like an anti science. I mean, I, you know, I believe it, I believe it's really serious, I, but I also believe that depression and, and suicidal ideations are really serious. And while I can't, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't know if you're inhaling and exhaling is dangerous to me. If you tell me you're trying to kill yourself, I know that means you're, you're dangerous to yourself and you need to move in with me. Yeah. And we'll figure it out from there. I mean, so, so um, it just became a way for us to really apply the, the hard things of the gospel in a legitimate way. Yes. The gospel asks you to lose everything. And the, and the, the the passage that I look at um, with, Gospel comes with a house key a lot. There are two passages, but one is Mark 20, you know, where, where Jesus uh, says, you will lose everything, houses, mothers, you know, sisters. Um, and um, I'm sorry, Mark 10, isn't that right? Mark 10, I think so, yes, yeah. Mark 10, 20, Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Well, wow. that's not going to fall from the sky. That's going to come from Christian homes. It's right. a promise. It's a promise, especially to people, I believe, who are single, that you are the uncles and the aunts that we need. We need you right here. It's lonely without you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need you. And maybe you need us, but we need you more. Yeah. And, um, and that's true. So that's how we live. Well, again, guys, it's got the gospel comes with a house key. We didn't, sorry, we didn't have that much time to get into it, but it's such an encouraging and very convicting book. So be prepared. And it, but I, I highly recommend it. I mean, get all, all three of these books, get people, you know, gifts for the holidays and Christmas. And, <laughs> um, but you just, we're going to close on this. You are writing, you just are finishing writing your, another book. Can you just briefly tell us what that is about? Yeah, it's called the five lies of our anti-Christian age. And if you want to put in parentheses, which Rosaria once believed, you may do that. And um, those lies are hard things, but we need to confront them as lies. Um, They are things like um, homosexuality is normal. Transgenderism is normal. um, uh, Pagan spirituality is kinder than biblical Christianity. Um, modesty is an outdated virtue. Um, so five lies and each chapter confronts those five lies. It's written specifically for, for, uh, you know, I say Christian women with a backbone. It's written for women kind of like me, you know, kind of my age, my, my, my moment where, you know, you've got daughters and granddaughters um, who have fallen uh, in, who have been indoctrinated and, the question that you have is how can I love my people? How can I love my people and stay connected without believing the indoctrination? And so it's a hard book. Um, it's a brutal book. <laughs> and what's the, what's the release date? Release date is, um, I think right now we're saying uh, end of September, early October, 2022. 
Okay, well, we'll have to have you back if you will come. We'll of have to have course. you back with that book because uh, your your stuff is so great. Your writing, and um, so we're going to have to leave it at that. But thank you so much for being on the show. And guys, we will see you next week on the Becca Cook Show. Thank you, Rosaria. Thank you, Beckett. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. We're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast, where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in an everyday settings. To learn more and subscribe, go to lifeaudio.com.